0: This is a recording of Lynn Worthen, who's talking about being a technical communications consultant. She gave this presentation to the Intermountain Chapter in Utah on January 20, 2010. If you'd like to know more about Lynn or if you have questions for her, contact her through the information on the show notes. All right, I hope you enjoy.
1: Hi, my name is Lynn Worthen, and I am a technical writer working in the field. I work for myself as an independent consultant, and see this pretty little sheet that nobody wanted to read tells you all about me. It says that I am the chief cook and bottle washer at Information Design Company, which means I do everything, I wear all the hats, and have a lot of fun. Um, I've been working as a tech writer for over 20 years. Fell into it quite by accident because with four little kids it was better income I could get as a single mom than waiting tables. And we heard about waiting tables just chatting about that. So found um, people I could get some, do some work for. They paid me for that. I actually kept the check as long as I could actually stand it until I had to cash it. And then I went and photocopied it first because I never thought anybody would pay me ever again for something that was so pitifully easy and then they keep on paying me and so I just keep on doing it and it's really been working out very well anyhow um, as a technical writer and through my company I do the following copywriting course development e-learning instructor led document layout and design editing help file creation newsletter layout design and editing marcom product documentation project management technical writing and voiceover including writing scripts because for me, as a working writer, I, have, I don't want to be stuck in a niche. If I'm stuck in a niche, that's the only thing anybody thinks I can do. Now, there are disadvantages to having a broad offering, which is when they find out that you're a company of one, they're like, oh, well, no one person can do all those things. But which is why I have a really nice portfolio to back me up. And I'll talk about a little bit about that, too. But before we get going, we're talking about, I called it riding the tide pros and cons of independent technical communications consulting. I call it riding the tide, because the tide can be in, and you've got plenty of work to do, or it can go out. Or it can come in, and it can swamp you. And I've had all three experiences, and all variations just about in between. So I'm going to talk about, a little bit about the pros and cons, what's good about it, what's not so great about it. But before we get into that, I want your questions. I want to know what you think, or what you want to know. I also want to know what you think about technical communications consulting. What is in your mind when you hear that somebody is a freelancer? I'm curious to know how you Okay, so we wanna talk tonight about business structure and decisions, what types of business structures, what are the legal ramifications, and why I made the business choice that I did. Um, How do you get clients? How do you market? Um, Oh, if you work with employees, if you choose to hire people, what are the issues that you face there? How do you bill? How do you get paid? Contract situations, billing situations. How do you decide what your rates are going to be? And how do you get out of the niche? How do you expand your offerings so that you're more marketable? So those are the basic, some of the basic questions. I've got several other topics, and pretty much, I think, the only one of those I didn't already have was how do I set rates? But that's okay. I mean, I can, we can talk about that too. So let's see. So. Um, how did I get started I was um, editing typing and editing people's papers in college I typed for a dollar a dollar a page and that was actually pretty decent because I can type pretty fast and a dollar a page for somebody's research paper or a thesis as fast as my little fingers could fly I was making enough money to you know su- supplement our income without having to put all of everything I earned into paying for childcare since I had children. I got stung on that when a law student brought me his class notes, and that page that he brought me to type up was eight point font with no margins and no white space in the thing at all, and actually ended up being about 40 pages worth by the time it was typed out. It was kind of pitiful. So I learned a little bit there, again, about making sure that we define the scope, which helps quite a bit. Um, I, uh, my next writing gig, the one that people actually paid me for writing original material, I was writing for a, a company that did some presentation materials. They would have somebody go, you've, you've all seen where they have somebody come to a hotel, fill a room, they talk, tell you all about fill-in-the-blank thing that will be wonderful for your life, and then at the back of the room you can buy the, the manual that will tell you how to do whatever it is that they've been talking to you about for an hour or two, and they'll charge you 400 bucks for the manual. and You go home and you hopefully get rich and famous. Only the particular speaker that this group was working with, he could pack a hotel room. People would buy every copy of the manual that they had with them and he had a 98% return rate on the manual because it was such drivel that they couldn't make sense of it. (laughs) It was very, 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 very bad. So they needed somebody who could take his dynamic presentation and the information that just had people eating out of his hand and put it on paper in such a way that it made sense. Now my background is in psychology, communications, and translation. And so what I have developed as a tagline is that I translate Geek Speak into English. I, took, I attended one of his seminars. I took notes. I took his notebook. I rewrote it. And the, ni- and the reproo- uh, return rate of the manuals dropped from 98% to 18%. People were then buying it, keeping it, whether they managed to get rich and famous or not but they could use it. And that was probably the first time that I actually found that what I did was making a difference. Now, like I said, it was pitifully easy to do that, but that was just because I happened to have a way with words and he not have way. <laughs> so, you know, it was it was a beginning of something that I learned was a valuable commodity that I possessed. And so I played with that, I ran with that. I could do something besides wait tables or clean toilets or any of the other lack of skilled jobs that somebody with a degree in psychology, communications, and translation is qualified to do.
0: Did, did he ask you to rewrite the manual? Um, actually, it
1: was the, it was the company that sponsored him. That was the company that sent him out on places. They're the ones who said, we, want, we like you, we need your material, but we need to have somebody else rewrite you. And he's like, oh fine, do whatever you think you need to do. Um, I actually ended up then writing manuals for four other speakers that that organization sponsored and sent out. And so I worked with them for about three years as a, in, as a consultant. Um, doing it freelance, and they finally decided that it was so nice having people, somebody to actually write the materials, they wanted someone full-time and that defeated my purpose, which was to be able to be at home with my kids, and so I didn't take the job. But, um, you know, it was, again, it was a trade-off. It was, I wanted to do the work, but I needed the flexibility, and that's how I really got started being an independent. Um, I incorporated in 2005, and I've been you know, just an incorporated business. So now, for a little over four years, in the intervening years, I've worked just about every way that there is. Um, as a sole proprietor, as an, you know, independent, as a full-time captured employee, as a part-time, you know, you name it. I've probably worked that way in one way or another. When you say incorporated, I assume you mean. I am an escort. Business
2: license. Yeah,
1: okay. yeah, the the full nine yards, and I did that because mostly for tax reasons, um, because when you're writing, well, when you're doing any kind of thing that could be considered hobby work but is also something that makes an income, you end up having to pay you know, self-employment taxes and all that other. I wasn't necessarily making enough on the occasional project I might get to justify incorporating. I also didn't have a lot of the legal issues that had potential or, you know catching me up. Um, when it got to the point where I was make, making basically a, a full-time living off of my off of my technical writing, of the independent technical writing, not just what I was doing as an employee for another company. That's when I went and I talked with my accountant and I talked with a lawyer and had them walk me through the different types of business structures that were available. And and help me guide a plan, create the plan that was going to work best for my particular needs. And so to answer the question about the business structure, um, I made the decision to become an S Corp because of the information that I was given by my accountant and by my lawyer in describing the pros and cons, benefits and liabilities of each type of possible business structure. Um, None, at the point where I chose to incorporate staying a sole proprietor was simply not an option. I was losing probably about 35% of every dollar in taxes. And now I'm losing less than that in taxes, although I still set that much aside. I, I just automatically off the top set that aside out of every check I get, just in case. <laughs> you know, because you never really know if they're, what's going to happen. And so I just automatically set it aside and pay my quarterly taxes and then at the end of the year, if I have something left over, it's a nice bonus. But um, but I got into the habit as a sole proprietor of setting aside 35%, and that way I never ended up short come tax time. When I started making enough that I was going to start having to file quarterly taxes, that's when I went and talked with my attorney and my um, accountant about better structures for my business. Um, so that's. On the business structure, that's about as much as I'm going to say. I'm going to say, consult with professionals before you make a business structure decision. Because what you want to do with your business will determine, and where your business is, will determine the structure that is best for you. Okay? And I'm not qualified in either field of accountancy or law to make those kinds of recommendations. That's why I went and consulted and that's what I would recommend that you do. Does that answer the business structure question? Okay, So we'll go ahead and take that one off the board. Now, there are all kinds of fun pros and cons to being uh, independent. One of them is that you can set your own hours. The con is that you can set your own hours, and the reason that it's a two-edged sword is because, well, here's an example. I'm on a serious project deadline right now. I'm actually on a double project deadline where I have one project that ends next week and another project that ends the week after. So I'm kind of burning the candle at both ends. Last Wednesday, I went out to the movies. I said, I'm sorry, brains melted, got to do something else. Went to the movies, came home, then worked all night because the deadline doesn't shift. And if you do something outside of what would be the hours that you need to put into it? You still got to make up the time. Um, now it has proven to be a very valuable teaching experience that I have been able to share with my children when they are, you know, not doing their homework. And now it's 10 o'clock on Sunday night, and they have something due the following morning. And I can say, then I guess you're going to be up for a while. It's no different than me. You know, it's this is the real world. You know, but that is actually. The advantage, a dual advantage and disadvantage. You have to learn to be organized. You have to learn to pace yourself. You have to really track your time and track your progress and know if your progress is not making pay, keeping pace with the shortening deadline that you have to either see if a deadline can be changed or speed up your pace. Yes? Uh,
2: track, how do you track? You software?
1: Um, How do I track progress? Uh, How do I track time? Oh, how do I track time? I track the time for billing. I just use a spreadsheet. I track it to the quarter of an hour and I record, you know, basically what kind of things I did in a given day. But I don't go into a lot of detailed timekeeping because otherwise I'm spending a half an hour recording eight hours worth of work. I'm not going to do it to that level. Um, but I provide enough information that I've only had one, um, one contract employer who has ever wanted more detail than what I give, and they wanted more detail in just about every aspect of the project. So it wasn't just related to the timekeeping that I was providing. Um, they needed it broken out for billing purposes to their clients, and so they had to know if you're writing this topic which is for a particular thing that it was done for a custom client. They needed to know how much time you spent on it so that they knew how to bill the client. Um, for that, then I used the client's timekeeping tra- uh, tools.
0: How often do you bill by hour versus
1: by project? How often do I bill by hour versus by project? Well, that's a fun one because when I'm talking with clients about money, in the first place, well, let's get to that. How much, one of the things about consulting is that the money can be all over the map. I have worked for as little as $18 an hour and as much as $65. And I have seen those rates for the same skill set in the past six months. Because especially with the current economy, what people are willing to pay or think they should pay for somebody just to write is all over the map. And so they think that by saying we need somebody with five years experience and can do API level documentation and we'll pay you $22 an hour, that they're going to actually get somebody who knows how to spell. When most of the people who know how to do the level of work they're talking about won't even will just delete the, the won't ad, even won't even talk to them, and I won't even forward them to people that I know are looking because it's a and waste I, of
3: them.
1: Um, well, but, but it like depends on, yeah, it depends there. on the level of experience that a client is looking for. Um, oh, that's really
3: nice.
1: You know, it's so if they're looking the for something, grand. yeah, if they're looking for something entry level then a lower wage or lower rate is, is one thing, but if they're looking for something higher then it's you know, totally different. But because, because, okay, I work also for clients all over the co- state, all over the country and have worked for clients out of the country. So rates vary. And the STC's salary survey used to be really good at helping you kind of pinpoint I what rates this are. One this one is real, this year's is really bizarre. I, and this year is really bizarre. So, you know, all bets are off. Um, in, on the consulting SIG list, people have just been talking about what are rates like in your area, just so that people kind of have a ballpark idea. But right now, nothing is the same as it has been. And, and that's been, we've all found that to be true.
0: Do you get clients who say, well, here's our software, you know, how much for a manual for this or something? Yeah,
1: like um, yes. I, <laughs> yes, they do. And, but you asked, let me get back to your original question, which was, how much, how often do I bill by the hour as opposed to by the project? And that depends on the client. Um, some clients want a flat rate bid, I hate I loathe flat rate bids. Um, I, I've done them, but I really hate them. Um, I, I like them best when I can bid, you know, for something that I can do in my sleep and then give them to, give to them a week later. But, you know, but um, honestly, if a client has a project that I simply can't scope, and I've been doing this for 20 years so I have a feel for when I look at a product and look at something and say okay if this piece that you've given me is typical and you tell me that there's 20 pieces like this, 50 pieces like this, I can tell you about how long it will take me to write it. Okay and then I can bid it out. When I bid on a project basis what I do is I take the number of hours I think it will take me to write it. I add 25%, <laughs> and I tell them that, I, that a flat rate bid will be no more than this. But if that they could be less. But, could be less. And, you know, but then I also give, tell, give them the hourly rate. However, to cover myself, and because I know how much designer, software designers love to change things, mm. I put in the scope clause which is that if the product scope changes by more than 15%, that will be reflected in a change in my, in my rate. If Yeah, if they change, you know, um, if they come back to me and say, oh, well, we've decided that we have to have a totally new UI, you know, which I had one client do two weeks before release. They decided that they had to put new logos on things and a new color, which meant that every screenshot oh, yes. in all of the material had to be retaken. I said, that's an extra charge, and they're like, but, but, and I'm like, no, that's much more than a 15% change. That's not just like you looked at it and said, oh, well, this really doesn't work this way here. Can you fix this paragraph? Okay, so you have to put those kinds of things in your agreements to protect yourself. I bill by the hour when the client is, is willing to let me bill by the hour. I bill by the project when they need it to be billed by the project. The longer the project, the more billing cycles I break it into. I might bill at two week increments, month increments, project milestone increments. I have worked as a W2 employee where I simply get billed, or I simply pay, get paid every couple of weeks just like a regular employee. Even though I'm an employee ad, uh, some legal term, I forget, not a full employee, but you know they're, they're treated like an employee. And there have been large corporations I've worked that way for because it gives me access to things that I need and it's been easier for their book, bookkeeping. And easier for the client is what I am all about. If I'm working with a small business who will choke on a large invoice, I say, I'll bill you weekly. If I'm working for a larger client who can sustain it, I'll bill them every couple of weeks. That way it doesn't take up all my time and it's just billing. But I still get things coming in at a regular basis, a and they don't have the sticker shock, oh, right, of getting be- a large bill. Because if you bill something, if you wait until you're done with the project, then you're, you're up a creek. Because it takes the levels of approval to get that, char- that check approved before you finally get it can be very painful. Um, for very large projects where clients aren't willing to have, you know, who want to have it build at milestones, I'll say, fine, we'll build it at milestones. I want this much up front because I am investing a lot of time in this. And, and so it's a, it's a negotiation process. Those are just some of the models that I've used. Go ahead.
0: Do you write your own contracts or do you have a lawyer write them?
1: Um. If a a customer has a contract, I'll read it, mark out things that I may have disagreements with, and will agree to, will use their contract. If a customer does not have a contract, I use a letter of agreement. It's less formal than formal contract language. It's basically like a statement of work. This is what I will provide to you, this is what I expect from you, but it's in human human speak rather than legalese, but it all I've gone through it with several clients and have my lawyer review it when I incorporated, and he said, this is perfectly fine, because I lay out, this is what I need from you, this is what I will provide, these kinds of deadlines, these kinds of milestones, and, uh, and it works very well. Um, I have clients for whom I have a blanket contract that says, I will work for you for X dollars, and this contract is good for a year, and the particulars of a project will be in attachment A, and attachment A is nothing more than a letter, a scope agreement, a letter of agreement, something like that that kind of scopes out the basics of a project. I've worked so. on a, a letter of agreement that was an email. Yeah. I've worked and on letters of agreement. Yeah, friends,
3: it. you know them and you know that they're gonna pay you and you're gonna work. Um, an email has even been good, you
1: know? Yeah. It, depends on who it, is. It, it really it does. It varies a great deal on the client. Some clients are extremely Concerned with having all the eyes dotted and T's crossed, so we make them happy when we say, "Okay, unless I find something egregious in their cl- in their contract, I go with it." But I've also f- pushed back. Even with I was working with a very large client, um, going doing the paperwork to become a preferred vendor, and. I- and I absolutely, utterly, and completely refused to sign an agreement that said that anything I wrote while I was under contract to them was theirs. But that's
3: typical.
1: It's typical, but I won't sign it because I don't write for one client at a time. And if I if I am writing for something and the way this particular clause was phrased, because I was under contract to them, anything, anything anything that that I wrote they could take claim to. Okay. So if I wrote for someone else, they could legally have tried to go after it. They probably wouldn't have, you know, had a case, but it would have been a mess. Okay, I if I sold a book of my own, they would have claimed it.
3: Now, I have had that happen. Yeah. Because I'm also a creative writer, mm-hmm. and I, had a, I ran across that, too, with a contract. that anything I wrote or published during this time I was working for them was theirs. Go, no, 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 we have to put in here that I have my own creative writing project
1: that have nothing to do with do. Yeah, <laughs> we, s- we simply specified provide. that anything that I wrote for that client while under terms of that agreement was theirs. Yeah, that's how you've got to change it. You have to change it. it. And, they, and they said, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay. You know, they pushed it out to legal because the person that I was neg- doing the negotiations with, she's like, I don't know, this is our standard contract. I said, I can't <laughs> sign it this way. I said, we can make these changes. And she said, I'll have to take this to legal. And she got back to me later that, about three days later. And uh, and she said, yeah, legal said that's fine. I'm like, I thought they would. But she was stunned because nobody had ever pushed back before. They kind of were cowed by, want to work for a big company. And nobody says, no, I'm not going to sign your contract. Well, you have to protect your career you are responsible for your own career, you have to protect your own interests and then protect the client. Because it's just like if an airplane is going down and the little thingies drop down out of the thing, you have to put the mask on your own face first before you can help the guy next to you. If I don't protect my career, I don't have clients I can serve. So I had to contractually look out for my company's interests before theirs. So. That's And that's pretty much all I would say on contracts is that, you know, you work it out, you push back if something doesn't seem right. I've gone to my lawyer and had him explain sections to me that I'm sitting here going, okay, I've had a basic course in contracts law and I have no idea what this said. And he's like, oh, yeah, it just means this. I'm like, you're sure? He goes, yeah, it's okay. You know? uh,
0: how important is it to factor in deadlines into a contract? Do you ever have clients who are just kind of they don't give you a firm deadline and then the project never ends and you never really get paid and yeah. so forth?
1: Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and when, that depends a lot on the project when you're first getting started discussing it. Um, because, and on how you decide how to bill. Okay, now I've, ta- I've had clients where a project just kept going on and on and on but I was billing them once a month, so I didn't care how long it went on, and they kept wanting it redone and kept changing their software. So as long as they wanna keep redoing it and I'm gonna keep rewriting it, we could go around on this forever. However, we worked through Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's on the same release, and I rewrote that thing four times because they kept changing, and this was also the client that changed the logo on the UI. And the following year in September, when they approached me to do the update, I said, OK, we're going to lay some ground rules, <laughs> You know, um, because I'm not working this, these, these blocks of days. I'm simply not there. So if you have stuff that needs to be redone, it's going to have to be done either before or after. Um, we can call the deadline whenever you, you want to call it done. That's fine with me, but these are my blackouts. And." because I knew that this client that I had worked with now for like three years running, typically did multiple rewrites like that before they knew what they were doing with their product, I held off and actually didn't write through the first cycle of them saying, yes, product's ready. I'm like, yeah, right, okay. Let's, let's, let's look at it when it gets to beta, <laughs> you know? And because beta I knew would be two more cycles, but that was because I had worked with them already before. When I first started working with them, when they told me it was ready, I wrote it. And then when they decided to change it, I wrote it again. It was a headache for me, but I was billing. And they were paying. And that brings me to one of the other pros and cons, which is you get paid for every hour you work. Any of you exempted um, company employees where you might work 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week and get paid for your 40? Yep. Been there, done that. With, as an independent, I get paid for every hour that I work. It has its corresponding con, which is I only, get paid for the hours I work. I only get paid for the hours I work. What that means is that for example right now project that I'm on people go to lunch I don't I work at my desk because I want my 40 hours and I don't want to be there until 8 o'clock every night. So I don't come in late like some of the other people do. I don't take an hour and a half lunch in the middle of the day unless I need it because I'm on my own time and I can do that. And I, um, you know, if I'm working on a longer project or I'm working on a project where I know I'm going to have some conflicts, I just let whoever it is that I'm working for, know that I'm, I have a conflict, I'll be in later, or I'll work from home today. And, then I, and when I say I'm working from home today, that usually means I'm working from home in the middle of the night tonight. But they don't necessarily know that. That's OK, because as long as I deliver on time and on target, they're happy. Um, the other downside of only getting paid for the hours I work is that there are a lot of non-billable hours. There are the hours that you spend marketing. There are the hours that you spend, and under marketing, I'll say, at networking meetings, um, searching through job posting lists. There are just going through and going to Costco and stocking up on my printer ink and other supplies. Those are non-billable hours. Um, Research is non-billable, unless I'm able to double, dovetail that research into, oh, this client I'm doing a newsletter for, and I really wanted to learn how to use, um, in design. not in InDesign. What was, I was using FrontPage. I was doing an online newsletter for them, and I was learning FrontPage as I was doing their newsletter, which meant that I actually put in hours that I couldn't bill for, but I also was learning something on the project that then became another one of my tools.
2: Yeah, I was just gonna say that um, for like example, you know, for me, if, if I'm doing some kind of fancy Excel spreadsheet that basically has to do a certain function and I have to research it on how to make it work for the client, I have to build a client for that because that's part of the job. If you have to
1: bill or if you have to do a specific research for exactly for the project for, requested. for a requested project, mm-hmm. yes, that is billable out, billable time. But if you are doing it, for example, the project I'm working on right now with this client, it's almost entirely in FrameMaker. I am familiar with FrameMaker, but the last time I used FrameMaker for a client was four years ago, which means that the current version of FrameMaker and just remembering how to get back up on that bicycle, before the project started, I spent a week of my own time playing in FrameMaker at home and doing stuff so that when i walked in the door i could hit the ground running and then all i was learning was the difference between the version i happened to have on my home computer and the current version which was not a big learning curve but i reacquainted myself with those tools before i walked in i could not bill for what i did during in that ramp up time but it set me up for being able to walk in and be productive so there are you know you only get paid for what the hours that you work. And in order to earn in order to earn, you know, what you're used to living on, you know, the live at the standard that you're looking at, you've got to figure out, you know, what your rate is, how many hours you're going to work in a given year. Set aside your taxes because no company is going to be doing that for you. So you have to figure out both your gross and your net. You're not just working to your net. Yes? No, I want to ask you a very specific question
0: on that when you're, when you're determining what you want to build. Because you said you set aside 35% for taxes. Yeah. But that's not taking into account a lot of other things, like your benefits, well, your right. uh, vacation time, You don't all get, those yeah other
1: those Well, and that's where. So you've got to figure that into what you're I to have to figure that. No, no. Because if I want to go on a vacation, Then I say, that vacation I think is going to cost me $1,000. How many hours is that going to take me? And I earn for that target. okay? And that will be something that I will do in addition to whatever it is I'm looking at for my normal stuff. I have four workshops I will be attending this year um, in Oregon on different topics. So I will be traveling out there four times this year. One client last year paid for all of those trips um, because of the hours that I was able to put in at the rate I was able to charge. Okay, But when I, when I was doing that, it was like, this is going to be my, my, my retreat project. So then the client still ended up paying? The, the client, oh yeah, oh so yeah. But, but I didn't factor that. I didn't fill, figure what I earned from that client into what I consider what I need to earn for the year you follow? Um, let me let me break it down for you this way, okay? If I'm charging $35 an hour and I work a thousand hours in a year, that's a gross of, 30, of $35,000. Then I set aside that 35% for taxes and by taxes that's all of those state and federal withholdings, and, self impl- or and impl- unemployment tax, and all that other stuff. Um, and usually, because of the way my business has been structured, usually that actually ends up covering the insurance premiums, since I have to do self-insurance as well. Okay? It usually ends up covering either all or most of that by the time by the time I average it out over the course of the year because I don't actually end up paying 35% fully in taxes. But again, that's that's just playing with the math and what col- what column it happens to sit in. For the most part when I set it aside, I don't set it aside for a little for this and a little for this and a little for this. I just do a 35% set aside and then pay what needs to come out of that. So there's my 35% which is which means my net would be $22,750. Now that's on a thousand hours a year. At 40 hours a week times four weeks in a month times 12 months in a year you have 1920 hours. So basically that's that looks like about half-time gets me about a half-time salary. Now, I'm actually working more than a thousand hours because I'm having to do all of this other stuff, all the marketing and managing stuff, but this is the billable hours. So in order to earn more than this I either have to work more hours or charge more. And in the current market it's been hard to even get that much. So that means work more hours, or tighten the budget, okay. But um, how do you, uh,
2: how do you fluctuate the lifespan to adjust to the, to the drop rise or
1: Because I have figured out, your monthly budget is the nut right. that you have to, exactly. okay. Like I know what, yeah, I know what my share of our family monthly budget is. I make sure I earn that. Anything I earn above that is great. Okay, um, that will earn me my share because we're in, I'm in a two earner household. Okay, that, Okay.
2: that's why I was wondering. Is because yeah. $22,000, that's... <laughs> that's not gonna to do it. <laughs> right, right. I can, I can get by on that,
1: okay? It's not, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that I even like doing that, right. okay? But if I had to, I could get by on that, right. all right? Most of the time, I either am able to work, work more hours I can usually bill more hours than that, because I don't have a problem working evenings. I don't have a problem working weekends. That adds a whole lot of hours, available hours. That 1920 is just 40 hours a week. I work my own hours, so I can work more if I want to, or if I need to. If I'm doing projects for 20 $20 an hour, I'm going to be working more hours. If I get one of those $65 an hour jobs, I'll probably take it easy for a little bit. You know, Again, it's a balancing act. Just like, I mean, we were talking about the tide to carry that metaphor a little farther. When you're riding the tide, if you're standing on a surfboard, it's all about balance. And really when you're running your own company, it's all about balance.
0: Then is thirty five dollars an hour really kind of like the, the average rate for for this area? Um, it
1: seems
0: incredibly
1: low. It is incredibly low, okay? But for probably the last six to eight months, it's been almost on the high side of what employers have been willing to pay. Everyone's budgets are tight. My average billing for the last three years has been between 45 and 65. With only the rare small business client that I have chart that I have worked for for that rate, right now um, I'm not seeing a whole lot of people who will even talk to you in the 45 to 65 range. Again, that's h- hitting all over the country. Rates are all over the map. They
3: are all over the map because last I was offered a job at 60 an hour just in uh, November.
1: hmm yeah. Um, so and, what and, that's right. why, and that's why I was saying they're, they're, I have seen in the last six months I've seen same qualifications that I have for $18 an hour and for, all the way up to 65 oh, and all design. over the place. What,
0: on what's, what's impacting that? Is it perception? I mean, it's a lot, some of
1: it is perception. Some of it is that um, when think about your corporate jobs. When things get tied in the, at the corporate level Who are among the first people to get cut? The writers, because we are a luxury item. Okay, writers are considered by corporate America to be a luxury, and why is that? Because anyone can write. See, now
0: you keep on saying that also, but I disagree. I disagree
1: too. No, that's what. But that is the mentality, and I have
3: secretary/tech writer. Yeah. Uh, and I
1: have honestly I walked into right I have right. honestly walked into companies where I have been given something to to rewrite and asked who did who did the original so that I could maybe talk with them if they were still around and they said, "Oh yeah, it was our receptionist who wrote it." And I'm like, "Okay." You know. <laughs> um so they will literally there are companies who think that because somebody knows how to type They know how to write. There are companies who think that because the engineers know how it works, they know how to explain it.
0: So we always say this in jest. We always say anyone can write. We're saying it in jest. But how do we, if we're saying it in jest and joking around and saying no reads their manual, how do we change that perception as professionals?
1: By writing good manuals and by showing them what they need to see. Um, That's where one of the things that I would say as a recommendation, is to, if you're going to be going and trying to, whether you're looking for a full-time job or as a consultant, is to have a portfolio. Something that when somebody sitting there across the table from you is looking at it, they're looking at it and they're going, this makes sense. I can actually, I can understand this and I don't even know what you're talking about. Because they're looking at something that you have done that is high quality work. I have my portfolio in a three ring binder that I change out sections of material for depending on who I'm going to see um, so and I so that I can keep stuff current keep stuff clean keep it pretty keep it current keep it relevant to the client that I'm talking to but so they can see samples of what I can do and what I can do for them
0: do, do you mostly work with local clients or no I mean if you have like a- paper portfolio mm-hmm. and you're trying to get a contract out of state, that's not going to work, right? No.
1: Um, out of state, then I will either have them, uh, I will either give, usually for out of state portfolio, I will give a, a zip file containing excerpts from material that I have the right to use as samples. Um, with most of my clients, I have asked for permission to use, usually, an outdated version of what I've written. I never use a current version of what I've written as a sample. I usually use at least a version or two back of some material. Oh, exactly. And then I'll get to that in just a second. And then I only use an excerpted portion of it. okay? And that way, um, I'm not giving anything that hasn't already passed into public domain. And that's why I use an older version. Okay? You're not revealing any trade secrets, any proprietary secrets by using an older version. But you still have to have permission to use it. Even the older one. Yeah, even the older one. Um, and I simply ask for that in part of our negotiation. I, and I, and I, in fact, when I'm talking with someone and they're looking at stuff, and it says on there, used by permission, and, and it has the copyrights that apply to whoever it is the piece they're looking at is. And they're in, when we talk about the portfolio, I say, and if I were to do some work for you, then I would like to be able to use portions of what I have written for you as portfolio materials in the future. Some stuff I just can't do that with. A There's a lot you can't. And it depends on who you end up working for. Um, I always get a kick out of it when clients or potential clients want to see samples of work I have done that would be delivered on the web, because almost I would say there are two things I have done that are publicly accessible on the web. Everything else is, behi- is password protected inside company intranets. Yes. I can't even get to it. And what I have done in those instances is I, if I'm meeting with them face to face, I can show you the version I have on my machine. You have to understand that it is not in the company's LMS and so, for example, the table of contents won't be functional or, you know, things like that. Um, And you simply explain the situation. But sometimes I just say, you know, there's not really a whole lot. I can simply give you the references of who I worked with or print out a page or two and put it in the static thing. Um, which actually worked really well for some uh, work that I did recently for Novell, where they wanted, some, they wanted a particular type of um, material. The only thing that I could show were static screenshots of material I had done that I took off my computer because I can't get into the company intranet of the, pers- of the company that I did that was an absolutely shining, perfect example of what I had done and what I could do. And so I just said, look, these are a few simple pages, you know, taken out of context and, you know, not revealing any proprietary secrets. So you have to be very, very careful about that. And that's going to lead me to answering one of the other questions, which was about employees, and that's non disclosure agreements. Um, I do not work, I do not hire employees. I do not want to have the tax responsibility, frankly. I do outsource work to other technical communications consultants. I have hired people. Do you keep a percentage? Pardon? Do you keep a percentage? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, And uh, I've hired people. I've outsourced. Mostly I've outsourced editing. If I'm really swamped writing stuff, I'll outsource it to somebody else to edit it. Because the more swamped I am, the less I trust my own eyes to not see what I think should be on the page. And so I'll outsource the editing. and, uh, you know, and then when I bill the client, you know, the client, I've, I, you clear any outsourcing you do with the client. Because different clients have different feelings about NDAs. I have to sign an NDA with almost every client that I work with. Not all, some haven't even heard of them, you know. But, um, but I have to sign an NDA with almost every client I work for. Now, since I've incorporated, the NDAs tend to be corporate NDAs, which means that I or anyone I employ are covered by my signature on the NDA, and a person I outsource then doesn't necessarily have to sign a separate NDA. But again, I clear that with my client before just bringing on someone. Okay, because sometimes they want each and every single person who might touch the material to sign an NDA. So again, you cater to the needs of the client. It's one of those things where Whether they're right or wrong, the customer is always right. And I don't want the legal liability.
0: Let's say a project, a company pays you $2,000 for a project. You outsource some of it to another person for $1,000. On your taxes, do you report it as a $2,000 profit with a $1,000 business expense or a $1,000 profit with no business expense?
1: No, I have to report what I paid them because we have to issue them a 1099 at the end of the year as having done consulting work for me. And so that is a business expense against that income. And so um, when when I send all of my financial stuff to Dave, I just give him, this is what we brought in and this is where it went out, and I break it down. The IRS has this list and I got it some years ago and I just keep it on my spreadsheet so that as I what, and I don't do this as often as I should, but when I enter stuff that I'm paying, when I'm writing checks or paying bills or whatever, you know, I, can put, I can automatically, just in a different column, put the IRS tax category that that thing pertains to. And then at the end of the year, I can just hit sort, sort it all by category, send it off to the accountant, and he loves me most of the time I end up doing most of that entering the categories in during the month of February I when I'm hating life quicken. yes if I bothered to learn how to use quicken but I'm bothering to learn how to use all the tools my clients need and so I just do my paperwork my books in in Excel and I do it in Excel because I can keep all kinds of different spreadsheet pages for all kinds of different things and figure out a lot of stuff I, I, I'm I cut my teeth on spreadsheets so long ago that that's just been very convenient for me. And so that's the way I tend to run my books. But not everyone will. Not everyone likes it. Not everyone's good at that. Some, for I know a lot of people who use Quicken or QuickBooks and who like it very much. Um, I, like I said, I've just never gone that particular route. Um, I don't carry an inventory. I'm just straight what comes in and what goes out accounting. So I don't really need all of the other um, features of an accounting package but again that's the way I've structured my business and part of the reason I've structured it that way is to keep it as simple as possible and so that I can understand it because if since I'm the one who has to pay the taxes and pay the insurance and all that other stuff and hold the liability I need to be able to understand what it is I'm being liable is there for a good
0: book on doing all the taxes. Um, they're,
1: yeah they need to be rewritten um, <laughs> actually there are quite a few you know like the dummies guides and stuff like that and in spite of the stigma of the funny covers they actually have a lot of good very basic information in them um, if, you, if you find and work with an accountant who can explain stuff to you mine actually my accountant has explained more to me than any book ever could You know, and he's nice and doesn't make me feel stupid. So, you know. But I also, you know, in one of my many trial majors in school, I also studied accounting. So I have a little bit of a basic background on that. It was it was one of those things that I studied just enough to know that I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. so. So um, but yeah, with the em- getting back to the employees, um, I, I work with consultants rather than, I take on subcontractors rather than employees because I do not want the employer liability. I don't want to have to pay the taxes, I don't want to have to pay the extra unemployment insurance, I don't want to have to deal with all that. I'll take on an, a subcontractor for a particular project, When the project is done, if I don't have any other work for them, they go their merry way. I go mine, and if I have more work later, I give them a call and say, "Are you free?" And at the end of the year, I send them a 10.99. It's very smooth. There's no strings attached. I worked that way for many years. I still work that way for some clients that I subcontract for them Um, because, and you know, subcontracting has its pros and cons. Um, The whoever the parent is, whoever the umbrella is, has a fee that they charge to the client, um, and which means that my fee will be capped because if I charge this much and I won't work for anything less, and then whoever I'm subcontracting through adds their 10 to 15 to 25 percent on top of it, and I've actually heard of, of shops that charge as much as 35 percent in some agencies on top. This is the price the client sees and says, you're too expensive for me even though I'm only getting this much. So, you know, I try to limit the work I do through agencies, but, but that's my model. That and, I, and, I do, and, and for that reason, um, I also try to be very reasonable in when I pay a subcontractor, since I've, had, I've been stung by agency fees really limiting my ability to work. And so I try not to do that to subcontractors who work for me. So I charge usually 15 to 20% on top of whatever they're doing, depending on what it is they're doing for me. If they're doing editing, I'll charge 20% on top. If they're doing heavy, deep, detailed writing, I'll only charge 15% because they're doing the work. And all I'm getting is a finder's fee. And I'm sorry, 15% is what a literary agent takes. I can take that much, and I feel feel comfortable with that. So, you know, um, but I actually, you know, I actually think that for somebody to charge twenty-five or thirty-five percent on top of what I'm paying you, just because I found the gig—that
3: yeah, doesn't make do any it. sense.
1: But they do it, and that they do it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, now there are some. There are, especially with bigger corporations, um, a lot of the consulting jobs through some of the bigger corporations only will go through agencies. I know. And they'll, and they'll do that for their own liability and because the agency will carry the liability insurance. Um, liability insurance is expensive. Uh, they call it errors and omissions insurance. And it's about a thousand bucks a year for a million dollars worth of coverage. But basically it means that if I write something and it's wrong, and somebody, and somebody, goes, and somebody gets hurt because they read the directions, um, you know, then I have, have the liability insurance on that. Um, But, uh, you know, again, you don't, if, you know, an agency will carry that, and that protects all of the people who work under that agency.
0: that is part of that 30%. And that, yeah. So you two don't put an indemnity clause in your contract? Oh, I put the... back to the clients? I
1: have... You still have to have. But you have to, yeah, you still, you know what, an indemnity clause doesn't really... It doesn't. What's in the you. Saying that I'm not responsible, that you, that you, the client, are responsible the client for the accuracy. The yeah, I write, write. yeah. Um, I always require the client to have sign-off approval and verification of all of the technical right. facts, um, and that the contract that i pushed back on the indemnity clause was one of the things that i would not agree to was did, they wanted, wanted me to take that, they wanted me to, to that, take full that. responsibility for it and i said hell no i don't know your product
3: you
1: yes it's and that's right. what i told them i said this is your material right. your product your subject matter experts i'm simply the translator if your subject matter experts who are reviewing this material can't make sure it's accurate how am I supposed to know any better? You guys take liability for it. And legal agreed.
2: You know, that's an interesting point. Um, so being a contract writer, obviously, yeah. at least with, with my, with my network engineering group, I've been with them for like 10 years. And, um, and I'm not an engineer by any stretch of the imagination, but I know enough to uh, know what I'm talking about when I, when I talk about a high level. Sure. So you said you're a contract writer, Since you're exposed to all different kinds of industries and technologies, you really do have to rely on the SMEs to basically. Oh,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
3: And if
1: they're in the dark, they're in the dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do not do anything without a subject matter expert access and a subject matter expert with sign-off authority. Because if that subject matter expert can tell me, I mean, you know, if you can say to me, oh, yes, this is right, this is right, this is right, and he says it's wrong, you know, then I'm screwed, and I might not get paid. So I want whoever it is I'm going to, as my subject matter author- expert, to be able to say, yes, it's right, yes, it's done. And I've had to work where it's under committee, and I've had too many people arguing over whether it's right and whether it's done. So, and so then it's like, when you guys sort it out, I'll write the final version, okay. but you guys figure it out. And I will not, take that, I will not make that decision.
2: It's okay. not mine to make. And is that in your contract Do you specifically state that I must have an SMA to basically validate? I, I always
1: require head? a subject matter expert with sign-off authority, yes. Okay.
2: That's
3: nice, that, that
2: little caveat with sign-off authority.
1: Yeah, I, I learned that. that. I learned that a long yeah. time ago yeah, the yes, hard okay. way. Yeah, we, I, that, being edited by committee, that was how I learned that. One. Yeah, I so. Um, I have
3: the kind of insurance that is, is insurance and liability. Like if I fall down their stairs. I'd oh yeah, that's um, business liability or, insurance. Or, you know, i ruin anything of theirs or whatever, it's all covered. Yep. But with this particular client I don't have to have errors or omissions so I'm not buying it, but with Disney I did
1: have to have it. So yeah. I I'm only buy, buy I only I buy, it. buy it. I only yeah. buy it when I have to have it and if I and if I don't have to renew it, I don't renew it for the okay. following year. i just get it again three years down the road when I need to. Business liability, yeah, business liability I always keep. Um, But uh, errors and omissions, I only get if a client requires it. Um, So. Sure. Uh yeah. I end up I write I write more in Word than in anything else that I write in.
0: And that's just so they can
1: And it's it out. it's for portability, it's for it's for revisions, editing, right. maintenance. Cuz if you're the only one on your machine yeah. in the
3: company, then what yeah. how are they going to edit it, you know, when you're
1: done? The most bizarre one was the client who wanted me to deliver files as text files.
3: That's bizarre.
1: That was bizarre, but that was what they wanted because of whatever it was there. It, it was something where they were porting it into the application itself, and it would convert it all. I, and I, it's like, OK, this is really hard for me to write without any kind of formatting at all. but. I'll go for it. Well, you can <laughs> that was write weird. It
2: in formatting and then take it out of the <laughs> at the last minute. <laughs> I could have, but I didn't
1: well I wrote it in the word processor, but still I wrote it without bothering to do formatting because I knew it was pointless. Wow. And then I and I didn't want to have to go back through and do any more cleaning on the text file than necessary. Just yes. Just
2: so probably need to wrap, wrap up in
1: about ten minutes. Okay. Um, one of the fun things about working on your own is that you can pick your own projects. Downside to that is that you have to hit the ground running. Um, I have written on things I never even have heard of. And, And I kid you not, my very first technical writing project was writing about a router and the only definition of the word router I knew was my dad's woodworking tools in the garage. Yeah, and, that's
3: not gonna work.
1: and I'm like, I don't know what it is they want me to write about. And asked a lot of questions and discovered, oh, OK, I have to write on the installation of this, this thing that I'm terrified of breaking and I had the machine open because I had to actually do it to know what I was writing about. And I'm sitting here trying to put it in very gently because I don't want to damage any little pieces I might damage, because I had no idea what the hell I was doing, right? But it said it goes in there, so I'm putting it in this little slot. And the guy I'm working with, he comes in, he goes, well, that'll never work, bam. I'm like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> I thought that, it's like, okay, you broke it, not me, <laughs> you know? But that was the very first, first technical writing project I ever worked on, something I had no clue about. But I decided, okay, I'm gonna ask a lot of questions. And that's what you have to do is ask and ask and ask. And do your own homework. Do your own legwork. A lot of your own homework. Especially depending.
3: I didn't do any of that company
1: You'll do you'll you'll learn tools that you never thought you would learn. We lost our um, the developer who developed our e-learning um, package. He went to a different company and we were getting ready to update a product. The package and book got handed to me. I'm like, I designed the learning tool, but I didn't program it. <laughs> well, you're going to program the update. I'm like, Don, hi, I know you're at another company, but how would you like to go to lunch? <laughs> and I took Don out to lunch like four times in the, ne- in the coming month. Once a week, we would go to lunch, and I would ask him questions. And I paid for his lunch, and he gave me tutorials on how to use this tool.
2: That's just a developer's survival tool. I make so <laughs> no. the it.
1: Yeah, um, but then I learned how to do it. And then I developed several other e-learning packages in that tool because I had learned how to use it. And then I learned other tools that were even easier to use. You will learn things you never thought you would learn and if, and this could answers your question of how do you get out of the niche, and that's by falling out of it. Um, I didn't learn how to code because I wanted to, but because I had to. Um, I learned HTML because I was writing for an e-commerce package, and it had HTML in it. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be part of it. On my way home, I stopped at the bookstore and got an HTML for dummies, and went home and started figuring out what HTML meant. Um, I learned how to text message because I was working, going to be working on a project with Nokia. It was a worldwide project. Team members were scattered from Singapore to Finland, and everyone was communicating via text. And my teenage daughter had to teach me how to send a text message and how to receive and read one, because I did not know how. That's how I learned. Now I talk with all of my children via text, and everybody thinks it's just really cool that, hey, your mom can text. <laughs> but. Um,
0: I have a question. Uh, yeah. You, you, started, you started off in the world of consulting and, and freelance because you wanted flexibility. Yes. But after, uh, I don't know, maybe, uh, is that still the primary reason that you, you decided to, to be a consultant rather than... Flex, a, there's a there's three,
1: reasons, three reasons why I stay a consultant. Flexibility, variety, and freedom. Because I still set my own hours. I still can take my son to the doctor yesterday and then come in and still do my work. Mm-hmm. Um, when my father had cancer last or summer before last, I simply packed up laptop and worked out of my sister's dining room in Indiana during the summer while my dad was ill so that I could be there and still do what I needed to do for my clients. Their work was not significantly impacted. The two that I had major projects with, I let them know what was going on so that we could reduce the workload for a little bit. But other smaller clients, it was seamless. They didn't know I was in Indiana and not in Draper. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility. And the variety is stunning. I have, like I said, I have worked on so many things. Um, Somewhere, what was it, that, that nuns study about you won't get Alzheimer's if you do crossword puzzles because you stretch your brain? My brain has been stretched so many different ways, sideways, upside down, inside out. It melts down regularly, falls out of my ear, and I have to pour it back in with a funnel. But I keep on learning, and I keep on stretching. And then somebody will ask me two years down the road, how do you do this, and I'm like, I don't know. Well, you wrote the book. Well, then it's in the book. <laughs> because I have to purge my brain every now and then and you know, you can only hold so much in active memory at a time. But the variety is amazing and being able to figure out that that puzzle that thing that was just like <laughs> hard to that you couldn't even imagine trying to figure out how to write and explain to somebody else. All of a sudden it's like, "Oh, this is so cool because I know it now." So and then I have had the opportunity of working with amazing people all over the state, all over the country, and in parts of the and in other countries. I've even gotten to do a little bit of travel to some of them. And that has been really, really cool. Most places won't bring a writer on site. But for a few of them, I have gotten to travel. And so that's been really fun.
3: Another thing that's really nice about, of course, this about being took in general, is the fact that age doesn't seem like
1: yeah, it doesn't. And
3: what they they really seem to appreciate the years. You know, sort of have they it appreciate
1: the right years right? of experience rather yeah, than drive, looking yeah. at yeah at <laughs> what. Right. Here. right. right. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, I have to wear more hats than I thought I would ever have to wear. I have to do the marketing. I have to do the PR. I have to do all of the sales. I have to do all of my own bookkeeping. I only have my accountant do my taxes. I don't have him do my day-to-day books. Right. Um, I have to take care of my own IT needs. Fortunately, I happen to have a live-in IT guy, and that's helpful, you know, um, because my husband is a, progr- my husband's a programmer, and so he's able to, you know, help with a lot of this other stuff, and he knows the inside of the machines far better than I do. But um, I have to do the project management on a lot of projects that I work with. I have to deal with HR issues when I work with consultants that I have hired. Um, I have to do, I'm the custodian. Like I said, I'm the chief cook and bottle washer for my company, and I have to do the writing. So there's a whole lot of hats in there that I'm wearing, um, and yet you know it suits me because I find that the benefits you know more than outweigh it. Um, everybody says you know oh the, what's the typical picture? You can work from home in your sweats. Or in your jammies, I don't like to work in my jammies, so I work in sweats. But and for a lot of projects, you can. For others, you can't. Clients want you on site, you know. Um, but the big, the downside on that is that nobody thinks you're working. Your family doesn't think you're working because you're just at home. You're just on your computer. Your family is a problem. Your friends, your friends don't, your friends don't think you're working because you're at home when they call, or stop by they don't realize that you're at home and w- because you're working you know there are au- actually many employers who don't think you're working if you're not on site for them to see you working and i've dealt with this in a variety of ways sometimes more successfully than others for the most part i say that i prefer to work off site i have my own office i t- bill you know regularly i have all my own setup I'm i will come on and i will too. come on site. yeah but they, well, it's like I'm on site full time right now for this gig, but I set my own hours. And yeah, there are variations. Yeah. You know, there's there's limits to that, um, but there is the federal the federal guideline of what makes you an employee versus a consultant. Uh, you might be closer to an employee than a consultant, depending on some nuances of the federal yeah, guidelines. Like the where you've been changed. there for so long, yeah. But
3: I, but, I do keep my own time. Um, I don't show up at any regular time. Yeah. I don't leave at a regular time.
1: Of course, um, I didn't too much when I was a full time employee either. I have
3: Mondays <laughs> off, and, um, and when sometimes I'll work from home, but not very often. I do have a desk. Mm-hmm. I have a desk that's mine. I have, and, and
1: I have four desks around and the valley right now um, for clients where I come in on an occasional consulting basis. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, it just varies from client to client, but um, you know, some have a real hard time with the idea of you being able to be productive when you're not on site. Um, And for me, for me, it's been the years of experience and my track record that has kind of pushed that a little bit. And then once I start producing, then that tends to evaporate. But it's it's a consistent, a, a continual need to educate the client. To the fact that you can actually be productive even if you're not on site. Now I I prefer to work off-site depending on the project. Some things are easier to work on site for. And, and it really depends. It depends on the resources available, the people available, the numbers of questions that you need to ask. You know, it, it, it will vary. Um, but I tend to juggle multiple projects most of the time. Right now, I have one. It's a huge project. And I have another one that's also a huge project. And I'm insane for having two of them at the same time. And it's just because of scope creep and somebody asked for a certain time period that I thought I would be available. And you know, it, it overlapped poorly. Um, and that happens. I have found that the most I can juggle is six projects at once, <laughs> if they're not too big. <laughs> but, but um, you know, usually two or three because you write something, you send it out for review, you've got some time to write the next thing for the next person. The thing is though is every client thinks they're your only client and that's the way it should be. Just like every teacher in high school thought they were your only teacher when they gave you assignments, okay? Um, you are always, you know, you are at their beck and call. They email you, they call you, they want you in. You have have to be there. You have to be a full member of the team, even though you're not quite a full member of the team. And so there's a little bit of a weird balancing act. The company I'm at right now, they're having a huge team team meeting tomorrow. I didn't even get an invitation because I'm not actually part of the team, even though I'm there full time. Another company went with a you know hired somebody, and so when the next when the next um, project update came, they didn't have me come in and do it because they'd hired a full-time person. The company had grown to the point where they could do that then, you know, which was really weird because I had worked with them for five updates and now I'm not working with them again and it's almost like being fired but not quite because I'm happy for them that they grew to the point where they could hire somebody. So, you know, but uh, there's there's variations on it. Um, so, um, the and library
2: will be closing in twenty four minutes. Okay. If you have a journal to check out, please take the, the checkout counter at this time. If you are in our meeting rooms, you
1: have
2: nine minutes. Okay. Thank you.
1: Okay, well we have nine minutes then, so go ahead and pass out. These are um, just some basic things if you want to be a consultant. You know things that you that I would recommend that you do. Um, learn basic business management. Develop your presentation and networking skills. Um, you'll be giving presentations t- to decision makers and all kinds of people that you're sitting there going, "Okay, I have to present to this CEO of this company. Wow." Um, develop your portfolio. Create a catchy elevator pitch. Something that gets people's attention when you're talking to them and saying, this is what I do, and it solidifies it in their mind. When I say I translate geek speak into English, everybody knows what I mean. And it relaxes them, and we're ready to talk. You know? So um, decide if you're going to be a niche writer or a generalist. There's no right way. You do what works for you. But if you're going to be a generalist, start finding ways to increase your skills. Be realistic about what you think life as a consultant is. And what you want out of it before you take that leap. Um, it takes time to develop a clientele and a reputation. That And don't quit your day job too soon. Now, if your day job's already quit you and you're. And, and that happens, believe me. If your day job has already quit you and you've got some stuff together and you can go around and start marketing yourself, go for it. Um, one of the Three times I've been laid off from full time jobs before finally just saying after the last one, okay, fine, I'll just start my own business. Obviously, fate's trying to tell me something. Um, I actually went for nine and a half, almost 10 months, and didn't have my unemployment run out because I just started making some calls and said, okay, I'm available to do consulting again and had work very quickly because I had developed a reputation and a clientele. But that took time. Uh, and networking and letting people know what I do and who I am and when I'm available. Um, And uh, somebody was asking, you know, how do you get clients? I network. I do a little bit of social networking. Almost all of my business is referral or networking. um, So that if I go to a chamber meeting and I'm talking with business owners, I'm usually the only writer in the room. I meet with them enough times at something, and one day they have a need for a writer. And it's like, I know a writer. And they call me. That's how you do it. You get to know people. You let them know what you can do, and that you do this professionally. Eventually, something grows. Um, but it can take time. It really does. And the last thing I put on there, um, of if you still want to be a consultant, is to have a financial cushion if you can. Um, Recommendations are have between six months and two years financial cushion, because it takes a while to build that. Um, and, and six months to two years depends on your tolerance for stress okay, mm-hmm. and what your kind of monthly bills are. Um, or have a spouse with a stable income. Mine had a stable income when I said, OK, I'll go out there and be independent. And I was lucky, and I was successful at it, and, you know, and it worked out well. But I was terrified because you know I had we had children and a mortgage and I wanted to make sure I could keep my share of you know our of the contribution up or be independently wealthy and then go and do this because it's fun so um, last thing I want to point out are the resources the um, STC consulting sigs listserv it's been absolutely. As far as I'm concerned, it's the only reason I'm renewing my STC membership. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. Um, it is so valuable. The conversations, the people, the the knowledge that they have, the questions and answers, the conversations, um, it, it's just been a really, really useful tool for me. Um, the uh, the uh, consulting online book. Um, Various chapters have been written over the years. but And so anything that looks like it's date-specific, you might want to take with a grain of salt. But the core information of it is just invaluable. So if you're looking at going into consulting for ser- uh, seriously, that's a great resource t- for you. And then um, the Freelancer's Survival Guide by Christine Catherine Rush. She has been working on this for the last mm, close to a year now. Um, I think we're up to. 43 installments where she talks about uh, priorities, workspace, illness, vacations, job description, when to quit your day job, when to go back to your day job, Um, (laughs) uh, staying positive, insurance, discipline, uh, seven separate installments on money, two on employees, time, deadlines, patience, setbacks, failures, successes, burnout, flexibility, negotiation, professional jealousy, um, now she, her primary business is as a fiction writer, but she has also had multiple other businesses, and she knows quite a bit about freelancing. And her, the blog there is very, very useful. So, um, I think I answered the questions: how to get clients, networking, how to bill and get paid, be flexible, and follow up. Hire Guido when you have to, you know. Um, rates, just look at what's the going rates in the area. Talk with other consultants. Try not to lowball too much because then we all hate you because you bring the market down for the rest of us. Um, you know? Most and people really don't
3: want
1: to make this 22 No, most don't. And you know, the thing I would say is I do this because I love it. Um, and when there's not work to be done, Then I write books because I'm working on building my next career, my retirement career, writing fiction. But that'll take another 10 years before it's stable enough to leave off the technical writing. So, you know, I write because I write. And and it's fun. And if you have any other questions, feel free to send me an email.